your time of favor right now. And we are very, very grateful. We thank you that it is by grace we've been saved through faith. <laughs> and that not of ourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no man may boast. And we celebrate our risen Lord and Savior, our, our friend Jesus, our King, our brother, our God. Amen. And we are grateful. Now speak to us this morning, we pray, as we open our Bibles. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take a seat. With it being a, a new week and a historical event that we really are remembering this morning, I wanted to talk about, I thought, let's look at some historical events that changed the world to start off with, okay? Now, this first event happened in, and it was, it was profound. You'll understand this in a moment here. Can anyone tell me, and if, if anybody does, can answer this question, then I will declare you elect going to heaven no matter what you do the rest of your life, all right? Because <laughs> I don't expect anybody to get this one, all right? Here it is. It happened in 1754 B.C. Remember, it's a historical event that changed the world. Okay. This right here. You ever know what that is? That is the Babylonian king, how, how do you say his name? Hammurabi? Hammurabi? He issues the Code of Hammurabi. It, one, of the, one of the first earliest legal codes. Of course, we have the Ten Commandments as well, and its societies have to function by some sort of law and order, right? Or they don't function at all, as we are seeing unfold before our eyes right now. And so, that being the case, yes, that happened in 1754 B.C. Anybody get that? So you're all sinners and you know what your destiny is. Okay. Okay, good. All right. Let's go to 800 A.D. Again, this is an historical event that changed the world. 800 A.D. The invention of gunpowder. You know who did that, by the way? By mistake, it was a Chinese alchemist who discovered gunpowder. Mm -hmm. Roughly around 800 A.D. This next one, some of you should get. 1517. Anybody want to take a guess at that one? The Protestant Reformation is generally regarded to have started around 1517, 1543, around that time frame. Of course, what was the Protestant Reformation? It was really the belief that the Bible is the Word of God and anyone can read it and that you're justified by faith, not by works, right? A totally different way of thinking, okay? Now, if you can't get this one and you think you're a believer and you don't get this one in this room, it's, you're hopeless. You're done for, okay? So you're done. You should know this. July 4th, 1776. There we go. The birth of the United States of America. And that has had profound impact. It has literally changed the world, hasn't it, since that time? Democracy and so on. Good. Good. 
1848. What happened in 1848? And this indeed has changed the world as well. Birth of communism. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels published the Communist Manifesto. Manifesto. 1879. Again, historical events that changed the world. They mentioned the radio. It's still around. You still get radio in your cars, you know, with everything we have, but yeah. Now, some of you should get this one. December 17th, that's not the key date, but this year is 1903. First flight. My wife works for Boeing. She said automobile. <laughs> Again, my wife works for Boeing that makes airplanes. They celebrate this every day. Automobile. You're probably going to remember that the rest of the sermon. All you're going to remember is automobile <laughs> by the wife who works for Boeing. Okay. All right. Now this next one, recent, Farstinus, and you should get this. And it is changing the world. 1995 is the date. I remember this. The internet. Who said that? Internet. The birth of the internet. No, you're not saved. You never were saved. So you're hopeless, so <laughs> it's my mother-in-law there, so the birth of the internet, okay? So there are some, what's that, eight or nine, there is, historical events that changed the world. Of course, we would say that the number one historical event that changed the world was, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, since this is such a monumental event, I thought, I'm going to do something different, and my daughter will attest to this. I made a huge mistake in doing this because I, I want to take a look in this sermon at the last week of Jesus, and of course it's called Passion Week, and see what lessons we can learn from Jesus. I had no idea, I don't think I have ever worked as hard trying to prepare a, ser a sermon than I did for this one. She was there looking at me. I was doing this on Thursday and on Friday and Saturday trying to figure this out. I had no idea I had stepped into a horn's nest. Scholars disagree on this, to put the events on the days, because I thought it'd be nice to know these things, right? Oh my gosh, I would not recommend you do that, because you can go to certain websites, because I was looking in the Bible, and you know, my conservative scholars and so on, and you go to the internet and find, you know, Jews for Jesus, and their take on it, and chosen people ministries, and then this scholar says this, this scholar says that, and so on and so forth, and it was just... A lot of things that I learned that I did not know, um, yeah, but I thought it'd be good to know he did last week, uh, and be, it's going to be of the utmost importance, really, because as a person, think about it, they draw nearer to their death, what do they tend to speak of? Things that really matter to them, right? And so naturally, the last week of Jesus includes various teachings and they're very, very significant. And I, I did learn a lot, and you're going to hear it this morning. So we're going to start with um, Saturday, which is 
six days before the Passover, which, of course, is on Friday. Okay? John 12, 1 says this, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. This is important because Jesus knows that he is going to die. And if you had only six days left before the Passover, before your death, who would you want to spend your time with? Friends, family. And so he visits his favorite family in Bethany six days before the Passover. This is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, those three. Their home, the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, was located kind of on the slopes of Mount Olives, Mount of Olives. It was just outside of Jerusalem, about a two-mile walk. Um, Bethany was also the home of Simon the leper. Now, the dinner, we believe that Jesus attended because there's two anointings, you think, when you read the Gospels. One, you think, happens at uh, the home of Lazarus, and a second one that happens at Simon the leper. It didn't happen that way, we believe now. He went to Bethany. He probably stayed at their house, but he had a dinner at Simon the leper, and that's where he was anointed by Mary for his burial, okay? The meal he would have had when he was at Simon's place was a Sabbath dinner. Why would it be a Sabbath dinner? Because it's Saturday, and Saturday is the Sabbath day for, a, for the Jews. Now, when you study it, you're going to realize that enemies of both Jesus and Lazarus would have been among the group gathered in Bethany. Did you know that? So it wasn't just a small gathering of, of people, Okay. There would have been enemies there as well. And it would have been Saturday evening and turned into Sunday that this meal happened. Now, this group of Jewish leaders was already plotting to seize Jesus as his popularity among the common people was growing. And they were also going to arrest Lazarus because John writes, did I put this verse up here? No. Before he even gets to Bethany, he wrote this in John eleven fifty seven. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he was to report it so they might seize him. In other words, it was dangerous for Jesus and his disciples to be out in the public because the religious authorities were coming after him. Scholars believe that Jesus and the disciples were probably keeping a low profile during this time. Perhaps on a secluded spiritual retreat so as to keep his location secret. But the time has come for him to die. And he heads toward this last week. He goes to his close friend's house. And actually, the word began to spread quickly. Because John later says in John 12, 9 through 11, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there in Bethany, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But once again, the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death, remember that? Also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. The point here being this tension is intensifying during Jesus' final days, and it will culminate in his crucifixion. But before we get to Sunday, I do want to mention a few points. 
the last week of Jesus was, in a sense, predetermined. It's outlined in both the Old and the New Testaments. Because it's during this last week, it's necessary for Jesus to fulfill all that was predicted about him in the entire Old Testament. Now, there are three primary Old Testament passages that I'm not going to look at, but you can write down that determine this week. Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, 24 through 26, we looked at that last week, and Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. Now, I did want to put this up here. This is Isaiah 53, because it's, it's the suffering servant chapter in, in Isaiah that talks about what Jesus would go through during this week. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. We know he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. The predictions in Isaiah of his suffering, death, and resurrection in his response are all in Isaiah 53. Daniel 9 tells the day, the prediction of his death. Leviticus 23 gives the details of the Passover. In particular, greatly impact a proper understanding of the last week of Jesus' life. I'll get into that later in the sermon. Now we're going to get to something that was hard for me to get my brain wrapped around, and it's why I did it this way. Okay? Last week, what did we celebrate? Last Sunday. How many of you believe that Palm Sunday actually happened on a Sunday? This is why I put this up here, Sunday or Monday. This is what blew me away. He has this meal Saturday night, okay? He then goes to bed. He wakes up on Sunday. I don't know why I'm popping up here. I don't know what's going on, but I'll loosen this up a little bit. Anyways, I won't move. Jesus goes to bed. Saturday night, which actually had been Sunday morning, he wakes up to a large crowd, probably close to 100,000 people. Remember I read to you those crowds that were coming to him? Because what was happening in Jerusalem that week? The Passover. Do you know how many Jews were in Jerusalem? Almost 2 million. So a portion of those people go to Bethany because they hear he's there. And they're going to travel with him to his triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday. Now Jesus, the King of the Jews and their Messiah, he rides in on a colt while the crowds lay down their coats and branches and proclaim Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember all that, okay? Uh, when he approached Jerusalem, Luke 19 says this, he saw the city and he wept over it. Because, he says in verse 44 of Luke 19, they did not recognize the time of his visitation. And as a result, Jerusalem will be leveled. It will be destroyed in 70 AD. So we call it a triumphal entry. It was in a sense that their king came and arrived, but it was also a tearful entry. Thirdly, it was also an angry entry. Because this mass demonstration of people following him would lead to the anger of the Pharisees. 
which ultimately would lead them to desire his life, which would culminate in his crucifixion. All of this, Jesus was setting in motion. Now, we typically think that when he arrived, if you read Matthew, for example, when he arrived, what did he do? Went and cleansed the temple, right? Maybe did some teaching afterwards, and then he healings, and then he went back. Um, but Mark 11, 11 says this about his triumphal entry. Jesus entered Jerusalem. Did I put that up here? Yeah, I did. There it is. And came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. So he comes, and it's late. In order to understand this, we need to understand something about Jewish days. A Jewish days are really the evening and morning. The apostles who wrote the Gospels, they all lived according to a Hebrew calendar. Most dates noted in the Gospels would, should be viewed through the lens of a Hebrew calendar. And the Jewish apostles of Jesus observed the calendar in the same manner as any other first century Jew. When did they begin their days? At twilight. Literally between the two evenings. Not at sunrise as we do today, right? I mean, actually a day starts at midnight, right, for us? But it really doesn't start till we get up in the morning. Now, we know this because this is where Leviticus helps us understand this. From the establishment of the Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Just listen to Leviticus 23, 5, and 6. It says this, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So the day starts at twilight, not at midnight or what we would say even the next morning. So what we know is that probably Jesus retreats that night back to Bethany. It's not on Sunday, but it's on Monday. Okay? And there are actually some scholars who believe that the actual triumphal entry occurred on Monday morning or on Monday. If you go to the Jews for Jesus website, they will tell you that the triumphal entry was on a Monday. Okay? But what I want to focus on is not so much the day, but on the actual event, because it's something else that's very important. On this day, a Jewish family, on the day of, of either the Sunday or Monday, uh, he would choose their Passover lamb from among their flock to be sacrificed. It would be sacrificed on the 14th day of the month. But during this four-day period, did you know that what they would do with the lamb? Anybody know? They would observe it. They would test it and try to make certain it was in good health and pure of any blemishes. Moses writes about this in Exodus 12, 3 through 6. And he says, on the 10th of this month, they are to say to uh, take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, and a lamb for each household. And he goes on to say that um, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Okay? 
So what Jesus is doing when he presents himself, probably on a Monday, we believe, he is presenting himself to Israel as the Lamb of God chosen before the foundation of the world. And that's on Palm Sunday, but we think it probably happened really on a Monday. What we think happened was this, is that there was obviously six days before the Passover. Passover was on a Friday. So on a Saturday, it was that, that, that he was in Bethany. Sunday, he wakes that crowd and, and is ministering to them. Monday, he goes in for his triumphal entry and does, ministers a little bit, but then he goes back. And then we have Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, Okay. So during the remainder of the week of Jesus' life, just like an actual lamb is being observed, tested, and tried, you're going to find out he too was tested and tried and proved himself to be pure and holy, worthy and blameless. And then we come to Tuesday. So he goes back to Bethany, to his friends. He gets up in the morning, heads back to Jerusalem. On the way, what does he do? He pops because this mic is popping all the time. Is there anything give me something that doesn't pop? Or is it just, is it right here? No? Okay, because it's just like, it's getting worse. If you're okay with it, I'm okay with it. Okay. So he spends the night in Bethany. He gets up in the morning, hits at Jerusalem. On the way, he curses a fig tree. Remember that? You know, he curses a fig tree. Do you know why he did it, by the way, just an FYI to you? It was symbolic. The fig tree was a symbol of Israel. And if I don't even move now, it makes noise, which is even better. Um, it was, a, fi- it was a, a symbol of Israel. And if it had, a fig tree had leaves, it meant that it surely had fruit because the fruit always came before the leaves. Okay? It always came before the leaf. Hey, Frank! You don't like peeps, do you? Okay. Anyway, so this will be a new experience for me. Um, the fig tree, right? So he curses the fig tree, which is really him rejecting, the symbol of him rejecting Israel and their, their false religion and them as a nation. Because they were supposed to, they had all the promises were given to them, but they didn't deliver, did they? So he sees this fig tree that should have been, by all appearances, had fruit, and it didn't have fruit. So it's a symbol of his rejection of Israel. You'll see it in his teachings throughout the week. Okay? Now, Tuesday, he curses the fig tree. He enters Jerusalem, cleanses the temple, driving out the money changers. Now, I already told you they're already seeking his life, so what's this going to do to them? infuriate them even more. And from this point on, the religious leadership is furious, and they're determined to kill him. 
Mark 11:18 says the chief priests and the scribes heard this. I think we can put this up here. Yeah. You're going to keep seeing me put these verses up. They're going to take his life, take his life, take his life. This is a tense situation, which is the idea I want you to get here during this week for him. They began seeking how to destroy him. They were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And while he's teaching, by the way, there's healings going on and so on. So it's just this massive crowd of two million people. A lot of people are coming to see him. Now, the agenda for the last week of Jesus' life in the New Testament, Jesus himself mentions it three times, but in great detail he mentions it in Luke 18, verses 31 to 34. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling that he can say this to the 12 and they not get this, but this is what the reality was. He says this, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. He will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. I mean, and all these things happen. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. I mean, that was black and white, blatant, and they still didn't get it. Now, this obviously doesn't contain all the things that were going to happen to him, but it gives us the focal points. There are eight points outlined that Jesus goes over here that kind of determine uh, the, whole, the whole gospel accounts together, and you can harmonize it, these with Isaiah 53. But he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to fall into the hands of the Jewish leaders, condemned to death. The Gentiles will abuse him, mocked, spit upon, and scourged. The Gentiles will kill him, and he will rise from the dead. So he's preparing them, telling them, and that was his day Tuesday, in the midst of great tension that's building. Now, let's go to Wednesday. By the way, if you say that everything happened on not a Monday, but on a, there was actual Palm Sunday, Monday he went to the temple, Tuesday he did stuff that we, I'm going to say happened on Wednesday, then Wednesday they say nothing happened which I just don't think is possible. So now, goes back to Bethany, most likely Wednesday. He just cleansed the temple on Tuesday. And I don't know why he did that, by the way, other than the fact that he hates sin. Because it's now fit for him to teach. Okay? He cleanses it first, then it's fit for him to teach. On the way to the temple to Jerusalem, the disciples see what? A withered fig tree. And the lesson of the fig tree is explained. He talks about the power of prayer and of faith. He arrives at the temple in Jerusalem, where his authority and wisdom is questioned by the religious leaders. And again, knowing that the time was drawing near to his death, he spent his time teaching his followers what they still needed to learn. Many of the familiar parables were spoken during this time. But as such, with only two days left, Wednesday was a day of teaching and controversy in the temple area. He tells three parables in succession. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, and the parable of the wedding banquet. We'll go over those briefly, but these are judgment parables, folks. They're judgment parables. The reaction of the religious people 
religious leadership to him is this. He's approached by them, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and others, and they try to trap him in his speech. Matthew puts it this way, and then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Okay? Let's see what was, there we go, let's do it here. So what's going on here? Why is this happening to Jesus? He's being tested and tried. He's that sacrificial lamb. Jesus perfectly demonstrates his purity and power before God, man, and even governments in the way he answers the questions. Do you remember the things that they brought up to him to try to trap him? What's the greatest commandment? Do I pay taxes to Caesar? Is there a resurrection? All of that. After answering them, defeating them really, you move into Matthew chapter 23 and Jesus pronounces eight woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. His heart is so grieved over their hardness of heart that he concludes with a lament. You might remember this? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So throughout the day on Wednesday, he was teaching in the temple, and confronting the religious leaders. That's not a fun day, is it? Now, toward the evening of Wednesday, he ascends the Mount of Olives with his disciples. He sits down, and in the twilight of Wednesday, he begins to unfold the truths about his second coming. This is called the Olivet Discourse, his sermon on, on the Mount of Olives. He gives details of the Great Tribulation and his second coming, and after completing his discourse, he once again predicts his death. In Matthew 26, 1 through 5, I read about the growing conspiracy among the Jewish leaders as they plot to kill the Messiah. But they wait until after Passover, two days away, because it might cause a riot, which is why I put this verse up here. It's very important that we understand this. This is significant. Because God used the fear of the leaders to keep events on his timetable. He was to die not before the Passover, but on the Passover, because he's the Lamb of God to be slain. If he were to die at any other moment, it would be improper. It would not allow the prophecies to follow the Old Testament pattern and types found in Exodus and the festivals. He had to die on Passover in order to be the Lamb of God predicted by Isaiah 53. Of course, it would be completely consistent for Satan to try and counter this and change God's plan, but God would have none of it. Two other additional things happened on this day. He predicted that in two days he'd be crucified at the same time of the Passover, and Judas planned the betrayal of Jesus on Wednesday with some religious leaders. Now, from here on, every timetable was the same. Let's go to Thursday. Jesus and his disciples follow the Passover rituals common to the early second temple period, and they prepare the Passover lamb. They had their, their, the Passover meal, the cedar meal together. Jesus shares heartfelt words with the disciples. He washes their feet. Remember that? What does he institute? 
the Lord's Supper, okay? He, he prays for them. And all this is happening on Thursday. Then they arrive at the garden of what? Gethsemane, where Jesus suffered in agony, awaiting what was to come. There that night, Jesus would be betrayed. Actually, it's in the morning, because it's a new, again, the Jewish days and evenings. He's betrayed and arrested. He was then tried first by Annas and later by Caiaphas and other religious leaders. And now we get into early Friday. Okay? I want to share this point as well. I forgot about this. One of the things that you're going to see about, if you study this last week of Jesus, is the will of God at times requires persecution. And you see him wrestling here, but he has such a commitment to do the will of God, even if it's going to cost him his life. Because that whole week, he is, has to make the decision to go to his death. He's making a decision to infuriate by saying what the Father wants him to say, by the way, and move these people to kill him. I thought about this, and I wondered what your thought would be. Would you like to know the day you're going to die and how you're going to die? No. What a terrible burden. But he knows all this. He's carrying all this. And he is committed to doing the will of God. And so we see him wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane with this very thing right here. Now let's go to Friday. It's early in the morning. Jesus was tried by the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, Antipas, and Pilate again. He was led to the cross and crucified at 9 a.m. And died at 3 p.m. And was buried later that day. We believe Jesus was crucified on Friday afternoon. As the Gospels indicate, there was an urgency to remove the body and prepare him for burial. Because why? What was going to happen the next day? The Sabbath day. You can see this right here. Okay? It says, when, when even already come, because it was a preparation day, that is the day of the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, there's something other significant that's happening here as well. Do you know when Jesus is dying, what else is being done? In Jerusalem? The Passover lambs are also being sacrificed at the same time. That's why it says six days before the Passover. And the Jewish encyclopedia uh, summarizes uh, this Talmudic or Talmud description of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and affirms the actual time of the death for the lamb. Just listen to this. It says, a sacrificial lamb or sacrificial animal, which was either a lamb or a kid, was necessarily a male one-year-old and without blemish. Each family or society offered one victim together, which did not require the laying on of hands, which is called the semicha, although it was obligatory to determine who were to take part in the sacrifice that the killing might take place with the proper intentions. Only those who were circumcised and clean before the law might participate. They're forbidden to have leavened food in their possession during the act of killing the paschal lamb. The animal was slain on the eve of the Passover. 
on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan, after the Talmudic sacrifice had been killed, i.e. at 3 o'clock, or in case the eve of the Passover fell on Friday, at 2 o'clock. Jewish tradition indicates that the Passover lamb was sacrificed, watch this, at 3 p.m. on the 14th of Nisan, which could have been Friday afternoon. That's when we believe Jesus actually died. Saturday. Would have been what? Sabbath day, right? Now, did Jesus ever work on the Sabbath? Yes, he did. Did he regard their Sabbath laws? No, he did not. <laughs> Even in his death, he's busy. Okay? He's working. Where was Jesus? Well, where was his body? In a tomb. Okay? And so Jesus' body was in the tomb during the Sabbath. Pharisees hired Roman guards to keep watch of the tomb. But where is Jesus? Well, his physical body is living in a tomb, or lying in a tomb. His spirit, however, is engaged in prison ministry. 1 Peter 3, 18-20, Colossians 2, 15. He actually descended into Hades, or Sheol, because there is no hell at this time. Because that's a New Testament term. Now, Hades or Sheol is made up of two parts. An upper half is a place of bliss, and a lower half is a place of torment. Lower half is a place of the ungodly dead and bound demons. This place is not the final hell, but it's a place of torment. And he goes to the lower half of Hades and proclaims his victory to the bound demons. What bound demons were they? The bound demons of Genesis chapter 6. What did those evil spirits or demons do? They left their boundaries and went to cohabitate with the daughters of men. And that was it. God said, that's it. I'm done with these people. I'm going to give them 120 years and then I'm going to wipe them all off in judgment of a flood. He goes down to those demons that are bound. Okay, and he proclaims his victory to them. And even though it looked like to them he had lost while hanging on a cross, the opposite was true. He was victorious. Now, on his way out of the bottom half of Hades or Sheol, he does what? He ascends. You go down, you descend, you have to ascend. This is exactly what Paul writes about here in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Okay? So when he ascends, he goes to the upper half of Hades or Sheol, which is who is there. Old Testament saints, believers, David, Joseph, Abraham, Moses, they're all there, okay? And they're waiting to be taken to glory. And it couldn't happen until Christ had purchased their redemption on the cross. So after his proclamation of the bound evil spirits, he opens the doors of the upper part of Hades, releases the captives, and they ascend with him where? To be with him in heaven at his right hand. That's what he's doing, which he did yesterday, basically, over 2,000 years ago. Sunday. Obviously, I don't need to say much there. He was resurrected from the dead. I simply want to close, though, with this. What are some lessons that we can learn from the last week of Jesus? 
Well, some of the lessons that we can learn are, I think the first one is this, is that God is sovereign. He brought about all these events at his timetable. Okay? It was his will that is always done. And it's our job to get in alignment with his will and, and to do it to the best that we can. We also see this in Jesus. There's a radical commitment to the will of God. The scriptures state that he set his fate resolutely to go to Jerusalem. The disciples didn't know what was going to happen, but they knew that there was problems there. It was very tense, that there could be conflict, and yet he is leaning into the conflict. He's embracing it. He sets his face to go to die. We see a radical commitment to do the will of God. We also see him talk a lot about the power of prayer and of faith. He does this throughout this last week. And therefore, for us, we need to be a people that pray. Because his house, by the way, is what? It's called a house of prayer. Now his teaching, this is what is interesting, is focused on the judgment of God in his public teachings. He judges, them, and he judges the nation in the parable of the sons, in the parable of the wedding banquet, for example, the parable of the tenants. You know why he's speaking on judgment? Because the day before, or when he rose in on his triumphal entry, they did not recognize him. Their time was up. And when your time is up, what is left? Judgment. Judgment. He talks about this, though, in his private time with his disciples. The Holy Spirit. And that makes sense. Because who is the Holy Spirit for? Us. Only for us. It's about the importance of love. You're going to be persecuted as he was persecuted. And again, he says pray, and it's, it's prayer and faith. That's what the focus of his teachings, privately. And we can't forget this. The other thing that is dominant, it's a whole chapter to given to this, is that God hates hypocritical false religion. Those eight woes he pronounced to the scribes and Pharisees. Almost every one of them he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. They say one thing and they do the other. He also warns them, and this is for them and for us, be ready for a second coming. All the signs of a second coming are mentioned here. In Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, I don't think John puts anything up there on that, but be ready is really the point. Be ready for a second coming. And then you, you just can't miss this because Easter is a time of hope. That even in the midst of death, there is hope. That verse there, Luke 23, 39 to 43, is a story of the convicted criminal thief hanging on the cross next to Jesus. What I wrote down here is that there were three crosses, right? But with the man in the middle where Jesus was, there is always hope. He is in the business of saving people. He's just rejected the religion of Judaism and the nation of Israel. And yet here's Jesus, one of his last acts, what is he doing? 
he's saving a sinner, a convicted thief who is hanging on the cross next to him. This man is the antithesis of the work-centered false religion of Judaism that he just rejected. That man could do nothing to earn God's favor except what? Believe, exactly. Believe the promise of Jesus by faith. He is now in paradise with Jesus. And that is the hope of Easter. The hope of Easter. And so what I want us to do for this week and this day is just simply enjoy it. Enjoy Easter. Enjoy. We have a big meal planned this afternoon or this evening. Anybody? I know we do. Okay, who else has a big meal plan? Raise your hand. If you don't have a big meal plan, go to those people that have their hands raised, all right? But not our house, all right? Not our house. If you come to our house, I'll give you peeps, all right? So, but I want us to close with a song and a prayer. So if you'd stand with me. It's a song that you all love, and it's a song really about Easter as well. Let's praise the name of Jesus, shall we? Father, thank you for this celebration of Easter. We remember all that you've done for us, and I hope that people learned as much as I did what went on during those days of the week and just a sense of what it was like and all that he endured so that we can be here and worship him. So, Lord, we, we worship you this morning, and may this last song bring a smile to your face. And all God's people said, Amen.